Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people in this room. Father, we ask that you would be among us, that your spirit fills this place. Father, we wish to see Jesus. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this is kind of fun. I, there's some commercials that take place, usually during athletic events. That's kind of cool. That, but it's about the most interesting man in the world. And this is pretty exciting because I think I know him. I went to elementary school with him at St. Michael's Academy in Bryan, Texas. Um, and his name is Emmanuel Schweikert. Now, I know it doesn't sound like that would be the most like, interesting person in the world, but he really was. So here's kind of Emmanuel's story that made him so I mean, just for a third grader, like, I thought he was the world, he was, he knew everything. So Emmanuel was, um, he was brilliant. He spoke several languages. His dad was from Switzerland, and his grandparents spoke both French and German, and Emmanuel spoke those as well. His dad went to Sorbonne and met his wife, who was from Spain, and, and so Emmanuel also spoke Spanish. He learned English when he went to, to elementary school. Never spoke English before then, but just picked it up as, as he went. There's no telling how many languages he knows now. He went to Stanford, then Oxford, and he really, like, he's the most interesting man in the world. You watch, like, social media things, and he's, uh, the, like, diving with sharks uh, in Africa. Uh, like, all these things, like, off the coast of South Africa, like, he does all these things. Like, he really is the most interesting man in the world. But here's the thing that's even more fascinating about it is when we were little kids, you know, you go after summer and everyone sits around and says, hey, this is what I did this summer. Like I went to the pool at a friend's house and I swam and it was great. And so I had that going for me. And, 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 and then maybe we would go fishing or down to Galveston, something like that. Well, Emmanuel would come back for those things and he had been all over the world. So like when we would talk about stuff, we'd have like our little drawing, like, you know, draw something or make something or write a little paper. Emmanuel would come in with his big carousel of slides, you know, with a slide projector and drop it down and have his little thing and start pointing out all the places he had been. So you kind of rotate through this thing and you're like, oh, he's been everywhere. I mean, you know, it makes you feel like such a loser that all you did was swim. That's it. And I did learn how to mow a lawn. Yeah, well... I went to Versailles. Click, click. So you kind of got that going on for you, and you see that, and you're like, God, it's so great. Well, one of the things that really fascinated one year that Emmanuel went, he went to Stonehenge, and he talked about it, and it was just seemed so impressive, and I wanted to see Stonehenge as a kid. I wanted to be an archaeologist, kind of nerdy, but I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be an archaeologist. Didn't get to be, but, um, but here I am. <laughs> that's good. So... Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so Emmanuel, like, I, so I finally get to take a trip to England. I was by myself, and I was going to see some folks, some old young life friends. And I get in a bus, and I'm going, and someone goes, "You probably can see Stonehenge from the bus on the road." So I'm, I'm pretty sure that I saw it from the bus. <laughs> Not 100 percent sure, but in my mind, it was Stonehenge, and I've seen it, so it counts. But the reality is, is I'm driving by on this bus, and I was like, "There's Stonehenge. It's over there." That was Stonehenge. That was as close as I ever got. I never got the experience of walking around, seeing the stones. Now I go to Odessa to see it, and it's good. Um, But the reality is, is I never got to see Stonehenge up close. I never got to see what it was like. And I know it's some rocks in a field, and 
but I, I just wanted to see it. But the reality of it is, is sometimes I think we approach our relationship with Jesus in the same way. We like to keep him, we hear about him, we like what he has to offer, but we're riding in a bus, flying by miles and miles away, and maybe we get a glimpse of him, and maybe we don't. We think we saw him, we like what we saw, but we're not sure exactly the shape or the form or what it really looked like. And I think that this is a part of what happens in the first part of the passage of John today, is that people didn't, weren't satisfied just getting a distant view. So let's go into the scripture and what it says, and let me paint the, set the scene for you. Um, so we know that Jesus has been with, with Lazarus. Prior to that, he's raised him from the dead, and, and there's a buzz around town. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, what becomes the triumphal procession. He's going in. And so he's, with his friend, he's been with his friend Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are pretty worked up, and people have heard about all that Jesus has done, and people are abandoning their faith to follow Jesus. This is a problem for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It creates problems. In fact, they wanted Lazarus to be killed again. And Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and he's riding a donkey, and he's fulfilling prophecies, and the crowds are waving the palm branches and hailing what they thought would be the king that would push out the Romans, that would set them free. He was here, and he was here to give freedom. But at this point, no one really understood how that would take place. And that's why he's there. The cross is coming quickly. He's only about a week away from his crucifixion. The time is at hand, and he knows that. And as he enters into the city with the folks who had been following Lazarus with him, um, this is where we pick it up. And there are three things that I want to get out of this that I want you to pay attention to that, is, that I think are really important from this passage. Um, and the first one is that we want to see Jesus. Listen to the verses, John 12, 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Well, this is happening in Jerusalem, and the fact is getting close with his crucifixion, and he's moving towards the cross. Everyone else is there for the feast, for the Passover for to celebrate and if I could paint a picture of what it might be like it might be like everyone pouring it to the the national lawn to see the national Christmas tree lit up and people have come from all over and your the curiosity is peaked it's a Christmas celebration people are around even people who don't believe but it's Christmas and it's a tree and and Passover is a little like that in the world at that point people were kind of coming from the Greco-Roman world they were getting a, a, a view of what was going on it was a celebration and they were there and in that group were a couple, of, a couple of Greek men. It's kind of interesting that even then that there was probably some distortion of what the celebration was all about. But these Greek men have come, and we're not exactly sure why. And some of these, um, it says that the whole world kind of knew what was going on in that place. Maybe they just wanted to see what was going on. It's a big celebration. People are there. Or maybe they heard about Jesus and they headed to Jerusalem to get a look, just to see the mystery of the things that he had done. Or maybe they heard about what Jesus had done for their friend Lazarus and given him life. There's a lot to talk about, and it's not surprising either. Think about this. Lazarus had been dead for days in his tomb when he was raised. It was pretty remarkable. 
And maybe that's what they wanted to get a look at. But they're outsiders, really. They're not necessarily of the faith, and they're not there necessarily to celebrate Passover. There's some different thoughts in that. But whatever reason or fascination, they were prompted, and they went to Philip and Andrew to get close, to ask if they could see Jesus. Maybe they weren't content in their own lives. Maybe their culture and their gods that they had put their faith in were empty, void of power, void of the ability to transform or change, void really to do anything. And maybe they wanted to see what this Jesus was about, who was bringing people to life. Or maybe they were like some of us that thought, there's got to be more to life, right? There's got to be more to this than the emptiness that I feel. But whatever the case is, they were prompted and they went to Philip and Andrew and they said, "We, sir, we wish to see Jesus. In fact, the translation more, more closely says, we wish to perceive Jesus. We wish to know him. We want to get close to him, not just, not just to have a little quick view. We want to know him. We want to know what he's about. We'd like to see Jesus. What a powerful thing to say. I want you to think about this in our, that's kind of cool. In churches all over the world, especially during certain periods, they would engrave in the pulpit or um, a placard as a reminder or on the steps going up this verse to remind the person who's in the pulpit that it's not about you, you don't change lives, that the transformative power comes from Jesus And it's engraved, we wish to see Jesus. Does that express what's in our hearts? Are we satisfied with driving by from 10 miles away with maybe a glimpse? Not from a distance, but up close. Do we want to perceive Jesus? Do we want to know Jesus? Throughout the gospel, we see people that have had these encounters that wanted to see Jesus, the same desire to be up close. What about Zacchaeus who climbs a tree and Jesus calls him down or the disciples who dropped their nets when he said, come and see, and they followed him. Or a leper who fell at his feet. Or a paralyzed man who was lowered from a ceiling by his friends. The blind, the deaf, the mute, the possessed, the broken. We want to see Jesus because what Jesus offers is life. These encounters were life-changing, transformational. And I wonder if the Greeks, like many of us, do they even know what they were asking Do they even know what that request was? I want to see Jesus. We want to know him. Because if they knew, they might know that everything's about to change for them in such a good way. Are we ready for that? Because the truth is we can see Jesus up close and personal on our own. He's immediately accessible to all of us. Anytime, anywhere, through the Spirit, through the pages of Scripture, through people around us, through these gospel accounts, the hands and feet of Jesus and the people that sit in this place who know him. Maybe for you, this is a little scary. Seeming from a distance is safe. It's easier. It doesn't really require anything. It's not costly, but it doesn't allow us to experience life as it's intended to be, what the plan, what God had for us. Maybe you've drifted away. It's hard to get close. Maybe it's like a a good friend that you know from college. You don't really see him anymore or don't really have any contact with him, but you think really fondly of him. They were great, and they were so fun to be around. 
And you can tell great stories and smile when you think of their name, but they don't really have any impact on your life at all anymore. Or maybe like the disciples, Philip and Andrew, you're close to them, and the challenge is to be available and on the lookout to do all that we can to help those who want to see Jesus but aren't sure how to get close. Think about the, the disciples, the great gift. Said, hey, we want to see Jesus. They knew what to do. They knew where to go. So in verse 22, it says that Philip and Andrew told, um, they went and told Jesus. But it's a simple thing. But what a wonderful thing to be able to introduce others to Jesus. What a gift. We need to be on the lookout for the opportunities that the Holy Spirit puts in our way and take others to Jesus. The next thing that we want to see is that we see Jesus glorified on a cross. Let's look at what Jesus about, says about himself in response to the request for an audience from the Greeks. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's so much packed into this. There, and I'd love to just, there's so much here. But I'm just going to look at a few things. Um, because I only have 20 minutes, and I know that, and I'm watching the clock, and it's going fast. <laughs> the first is everything in his life, and everything that happens to him, is in direct control of God the Father. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he's approached, he knows that his mission and body on earth is coming to an end. The shadow of the cross is looming. When he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, That's the truth that lies behind this little phrase, that this is God's timing. Even his crucifixion is ultimately under God's control. The next thing he says, he's supremely powerful. He calls himself the son of man. He is God incarnate. He is supremely powerful. He is the Messiah. He is the one that will fall and be resurrected to give life. He shares that his coming death will bring him glory. It's clear from the context here that when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorifying, he's referring to the crucifixion. He knows what's coming. His mission on earth is coming to an end. His crucifixion, though, is necessary. He's going to be glorified directly through the achievements on the cross. What will take place? Because the cross opens the way to forgiveness for all believers is the great work that Jesus came to do for you and I. And he will be glorified not just because of his death, because he is raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven to the place of eternal glory besides his Father. And he will be glorified as we look to him. As we look to the cross, we will see the glory of Jesus, the coming death of Jesus will bring him glory. His death will bring life to many. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if he dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls. And this one seed is unbelievably fertile and fruitful. The life he gives up becomes the source of eternal life for each of us. Don't miss that. The life that he gives up becomes a source of eternal life for each of us. At the cross, Jesus undergoes the judgment we deserve. We don't have to. His death wipes out our debt to God. His death ultimately becomes the seed that brings new life, eternal life, and the plants and that he plants in us and puts faith in us. 
And the third part that I want to look at is maybe the hardest thing for each of us, but can't be missed because it's costly. It demands something from us. And here's how Jesus spells it out. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That means if we are to have eternal life that Jesus offers, we must give up our old life. We must let go of the things in our life that are holding on to us tightly or we're holding on to tightly. That's pretty hard for us. We live in a world that affirms this idea of self-sufficiency and strength, the ability to pull ourselves up and make things happen on our own. Self-sufficiency is praised, and yet in this place it's saying that we have to give up the things that we hold on to in this world. And that's kind of hard. I believe this is difficult for all of us. In many ways, being satisfied with seeing Jesus from afar allows us to hold on to the things we want, but it doesn't allow us our allow our lives to be changed desperately and, and fully. When it comes to what's controlling our life, one thing is clear, what Jesus is saying, that we have to let go of it. There's a passage of scripture in Luke 18. It's about a rich young ruler who goes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do? And he says, well, follow all these commands. And he goes, oh, I've done that. I've done that my whole life. I've kind of got it figured out. This guy's got it all. He's a young ruler. He's If he was here today, he'd probably have the right clothes, right car, right everything. And yet, he says, I've done all the things that give me eternal life. And then Jesus says, well, go get rid of everything you have and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler goes away sad because that was his life. That's what he lived for. That was too hard to give up. But that's what we're asked to do. The things that we live for, if it's not for Christ, are life-taking, not life-giving. Jesus promises eternal life, but first we have to let go of what binds us. He gives us a new start, a new Lord, a guide, a new basis for living, a new purpose. And we found this new life begins um, for many of us. And what does it look like? What does it look like to have this life? Eternal life begins the moment we begin a relationship with Jesus. And we know that we enter into this eternal relationship with a father Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death becomes the gateway to an eternal life, eternity with a global family. We are tied together because of our life in Christ. So it's an eternal life. Then it's a life of serving Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Pleasing Jesus becomes our goal. And our wonderful thing is is that we live for him. It's no longer for us. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. It may not be always what we want, but it is what's best. So when we serve him, we do what's best. The next thing, it's a life that's eternal. It's a life of serving Jesus. It's also a life of following Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That means the character of Jesus is our pattern for living, that we follow in him. And so if a new life with Jesus is eternal, it's a life of serving him and following him. It's also a life of always being with him. Where I go, I am there. There my servant will be also. Jesus promises where we go, he takes us, but we're never alone. He is always present with us by his spirit. So, so if it's all these things, new life with Jesus is eternal, and it's a life of serving him and following him, being with him, it's also a life of receiving honor from God. Think about that. The creator of the universe 
our heavenly Father, and it says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How can that be? How can that be? But we don't deserve and haven't and can't earn this type of love. In God's generosity, he treats us as if we do deserve honor. We are members of the family of God and all that that implies. We have access to the Father. Don't miss that. We've been invited into this relationship and the debt that has been paid through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That's offered to each of us. Those Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Those two guys, they really wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to know him. They wanted to perceive him. My question today is, do you want to see Jesus in the same way? If you haven't already, we can. By faith, we can see him glorified on the cross. And so much more through his life and his resurrection. And we need to be ready to lay down our lives for him. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again.